Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, October 16th, and I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. Now, I've been away for a while. I'm just now playing catch up on all of my work, but I'm really excited to be back and to be able to talk nerdy with all of you. I haven't thanked those of you who supported the show in a bit because I've been traveling and didn't have access to my record, so I want to make sure that I do that today. First of all, I want to thank those of you who have supported the show by signing up to be a patron at patreon.com slash talknerdy. And that includes Phil T. Bear, Timothy Glover, Rob Shrek, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Jeffrey Perez, Charles Payet, Jonathan Wright, Christian Jeffrey, Stuart Oag, The Honorable Husband, Jafe, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and last but certainly not least, Jeffrey Sewell. I also want to thank those of you who have supported the show via the PayPal portal over the last few weeks, and those of you who have shopped in the Talk Nerdy store, rated and reviewed Talk Nerdy on iTunes or other RSS readers, and told your friends and family about the show. That's the best kind of support there is. All right, guys, I want to tell you about my guest this week. She's awesome. She's actually a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator. She has recently moved to L.A., um, but she grew up on the East Coast, and she wrote two beautiful, informative, and all-around fun books, Women in Science, and her new book is Women in Sports. Without any further ado, here she is, Rachel Ignatovsky. 
Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am really excited that we finally connected. Um, Both of us had some scheduling issues, mostly on my end, Um, but I'm so glad that we were able to work it out because I've had your books here in front of me, and I have to say they're so beautiful and they're so fun, and I'm really excited to to be able to chat with you about, you know, why you made them, how you made them, and and just all of your background. Um, So thank you first for being here. Thank you so much. Well, you know, life happens, scheduling happens, and massive fires happen. Oh so, my gosh, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a crazy, crazy in Los Angeles lately, crazy all over the country, though, with, you know, just these insane, what they call, quote unquote, acts of God, just like the weather and the climate and um, and disasters have been really threatening a lot of people where they're living. I mean, we do not, we have not had the worst of it in LA, although there have been evacuations and things having to do with fires, but gosh, Houston, Florida, oof, it's been tough. Where are you located? Well, I am right at this moment. I'm in Kansas city, Missouri, but I am literally moving to Los Angeles in the next eight days. So (gasps) Oh, how fun. Oh, we're going to have to do a second interview once you're here. It'll be way more fun in person. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Oh, cool. I'm really excited. I'm really excited about it. I'm I'm done with winter. So, <laughs> yeah, you're getting out just in time. It's still summer here for sure. Like I'm wearing a tank top right now. Um, yeah, it's it's actually pretty hot outside. It's funny cuz I'm seeing everybody posting online how they're getting their flu shots. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's flu season. It just doesn't feel like it yet. <laughs> so, okay, I've got both of your um, of your books in the series. Would you call this a series? Yeah, I definitely would. I want to keep doing it. Um, mm. I started with uh, Women in Science. And then after just this experience of learning about so many different women, how their stories, for many of them previously, just completely untold, you just begin to feel like indebted to them. And there's just yeah. so many different fields of study, fields of, you know, like business, sports, art, all of them, uh, that women have been underrepresented. And I just am so lucky to get the chance to tell their stories. Absolutely. So you started with women in science, which of course I think speaks probably the most to to my listenership here on Talk Nerdy, simply because we're a science podcast. But your newest, um, and of course the the subtitle of that is Women in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World. And not only did you write this book, but you also illustrated it. And it's just so lovely. It's so intricate and beautiful and whimsical and has this very specific um kind of illustrative style that I love. And then you followed up, your your newest one is Women in Sports, 50 Fearless Athletes Who Played to Win. What made you want to go, obviously you started with Women in Science and then you wanted to continue the series. What made you want to go to sports next? Well, I just think that the most basic stereotype and probably the most dangerous stereotype that exists is that women's bodies are just inherently weaker than men's and that we're mm. just inherently weak. And when 50% of the population is seen as weak. We're also not seen as leaders because strength is so associated with leadership. And so I was thinking about how I could actually break that down. And I think nothing kind of destroys that myth better than stories about women from, you know, Victorian England all the way to now who have, you know, 
climbed Mount Everest, bench pressed over 300 pounds, um, broken world records, and just these acts of strength in the public eye, how that can change public opinion about women on and outside of sports. Oh, I just love that. So not only is there a really kind of informative, educational, and of course, fun aspect to these books, but there's also a bit of an activism vibe in them as well. Yeah. When I, when I start researching about these women, I kind of like form sort of a, like, even though this is a kid's book in my mind, I start forming this sort of like underlying like thesis statement almost about like, what am I actually trying to say by telling these people's stories? And especially with uh, the women in sports book that came out, all I just, I just kept thinking in my head, like the media is the message, like these women being able to perform and show their acts of strength on a national and sometimes global platform is so important. And then um, what happens to the culture after that? Because I just think like what we see on TV, the art that we're put in front of, it really forms and shapes what our expectations are in society. And, And that's how you begin to break down stereotypes. And I saw it when I was uh, writing Women in Science, I was just telling these stories and what these women really had in common, no matter where they came from or what field of study that they uh, pursued, it was just this sort of um, this like raw passion that they mm-hmm. just like almost like raw passion and love of their work that it really didn't matter what stood in their way. They were going to do their work anyway. Like if they weren't allowed to do their work because of unjust laws or, uh, you know, uh, Hitler's rise of power, even, um, they would find a way to do it almost in hiding if they needed to, whether it was in their, their bedroom at home or in a tiny attic, um, you know, in the university or in a basement all by themselves with no funding. They found a way to pursue their work just for the love of it. And that's how they changed the world through like basically passion and love. So you'll see kind of stories that kind of echo each other in the book that are just like that. I love that. I love that you were able to find these these themes and these threads that, you know, show a commonality between all of these women, but at the same time really celebrate their uniqueness. And I have to push back on something you said, or maybe push back is the wrong word, but you said this is a kid's book and I didn't even realize that. <laughs> Well, I was like, oh, she totally wrote this for me, right? I I actually, I didn't really write it for kids. I wrote it for, um, I wrote it at an eighth grade level, which is like how you write newspapers. And in my head, I was like, this is going to be for a seven-year-old. And this is also going to be for their mom who maybe doesn't um, know that much about science. And she's learning these things for the first time. And then as I released the book, um, I've had scientists who actually, um, you know, who are like in their fifties and sixties be like, I love reading this book. I'm learning so much about fields of study that I didn't, that I'm not in. And Mm -hmm. so they read it and then they end up buying it for all of their like nieces and nephews. So it's just, I love that. It's like, when I say it's for like seven to like 80 years old, I really mean (laughs) it. Like usually that's just a line, but it's nuts. I'm so thrilled that this book has been able to touch people in so many different ways and in so many different generations. It's just, it's good. Oh, absolutely. And it's just, it's really is just stunning. It's equal parts fascinating and visually compelling. Have you always been an artist? 
Yes. So I actually um, have, this is, this is my first book and this is the first thing I ever wrote or written or whatever word I'm supposed to use. Mm -hmm. I am an illustrator. I am a graphic designer. I knew I wanted to go into art when I was 14 and I started taking it super seriously, uh, like much to like my mom and dad's dismay, but then they got over it. They were like, Oh, like she, she can make a job out of this. They got over it. But I was super serious about it. I was, um, taking art classes and like taking the train into Philadelphia from New Jersey where I grew up, uh, during the summer to like pump up my portfolio. And I went to Tyler school of art for design and, I actually got hired right out of school as a greeting cards illustrator and designer for Hallmark Cards. And oh my gosh, what a dream job. How fun. It it was. It was really fun, but it wasn't my dream job. Like, I, <laughs> you know, like I was there and I'm like, this is someone else's dream job, <laughs> man. And it's like really weird to be in this situation where you're like, wow, this is like a really nice job, but it's not the one I want. And it, yeah. it's, and so I, I, I quit actually, because I, I wanted to make art that, um, as much as it's important to say happy birthday, I wanted to make art <laughs> that didn't say happy birthday. I wanted to talk about subjects that I thought were really important because I knew that I had the skill of being able to organize information that's really dense and to make it yeah. look cool and make it look fun and really approachable. And I, I felt like a responsibility to kind of make stuff that um, was educational. I had I had so many friends in Teach for America at the time. And I, I would hear about their stories and what they were working on. And I was like, I, I want to do stuff that can give them some tools to help out in their classrooms. Absolutely. I it's really, really cool how you were able to make that transition. I think a lot of people have to go through that when they're fresh out of college. I mean, we see this a lot with individuals who study science. You know, I mostly interview scientists, science communicators, which you are in that camp now. You are a science communicator. Um, but I mostly interview people like that on the show. And I love hearing about their journey, which is why I always um, dig so deeply into how people got to where they are today, because it's becoming increasingly more common that that people will train, you know, for decades in, in the sciences and even go all the way through to the PhD and then be like, I don't know if I want to be a scientist. <laughs> oh no, what am I going to do with my life? And it's really cool to see how many people take their training and, and put it to work for them in a way that's fulfilling. You know, obviously as an illustrator, as a graphic designer, there's a lot of different avenues that you could have taken, but you chose this path that was really reflective and kind of um, fulfilling for you. Like you're doing very important work in, especially in these books. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I feel like for me and my artwork, one of the real turning points is I was doing these anatomy illustrations mm. um, and I was doing each body system kind of like they were a character and I did the, <laughs> and they look really goofy and they're all slimy and silly. And, um, I did the respiratory system and there's like this little diaphragm and he's like squinting and pushing up the lungs with little tiny arms. And, um, I just did them because it was an idea I had and I thought it'd be cool. And I've never seen someone, uh, do this before for human anatomy. But then mm -hmm. I got, um, an email, uh, 
from this dad who is like, I have a kid and they have a lung condition where they need to use a respirator at night and they're four years old. And I've never been able to show her what her body really looks like because she gets freaked out by the actual anatomy drawings that are realistic. But this she understands and now she's not afraid to use her respirator at night. Oh my gosh. So that's, yeah. I got chills. I know. I, it was this really powerful, um, it was just this really powerful moment where, you know, those things that you kind of say in your head where you're like, art has power and like, like this could, this could do something. And, but you you don't really know if it's true until something like that happens. And then you're like, oh, this is, this is important work. People need tools to communicate, um, with each other and with their kids that are, are, a little more playful and a little bit more fun when it comes to hard science. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm flipping through the book right now as we're talking. And by the way, that could be a whole second gig for you. It's like working with hospitals and making these pamphlets for little kids when they're dealing with some of these issues. Like a lot of little kids have to get G-tubes or if they're ever intubated or if they're, you know, any of these issues that they have to go through. I could see that being really helpful for them just understanding what's happening when, you know, it, it can be so overwhelming when you're stuck in a medical situation like that. So I won't take credit. I won't take your 10% <laughs> or anything, but just, food for thought. Um, So I'm flipping through this book and it's just making me realize how much... So I work on another podcast called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And one of the segments on that podcast, um, one of my co-hosts, Bob Novella, does um, a segment called Forgotten Superheroes of Science, where he, you know, talks a lot about oftentimes a woman, because oftentimes they're the ones who are forgotten most, or an ethnic minority um, who made some sort of big contribution to science and... um, kind of helps people remember these people who aren't always at the top of the textbooks or, you know, aren't always like the the hit Wikipedia searches. And so I feel like there's so much fodder in this book for him. I need to ask him if he's covered all of these women so far. Um, gosh, can you think of like, I don't know, this is a mean question to ask. Do you have a favorite? Was there anybody when you were working on it who you were just like, oh my gosh, I am so glad I got to take the time to learn about this person. Man. And of course, I know your science book you did before the sports book, so it might not be quite as fresh in your mind. No, I. Uh, it's like, like don't make me choose. But I know, right? <laughs> um, I would say uh, Lisa Meitner. Uh, I think I'm saying her name right. I always get scared that I'm saying her name wrong because it's yeah. like the German pronunciation and all the letters are different. But uh, Lisa Meitner, um, just learning about her story. Um, so she was working in Germany um, during a time when women weren't even allowed to go to university. So for her, that meant to be able to do the radiochemistry experiments that she was working on. They uh, put her in the basement. And they Mm -hmm. wouldn't even let her use the bathrooms. They were like, you could go to the restaurant to use the bathrooms. We don't want to see you in this building because this building is just for men. It's just like the most basic sort of sexism you could even think of. Um, But luckily, it's just, it's nuts. Um, But um, the Prussian government eventually allowed women into university. She becomes one of the first female professors in her field in Germany, and she's accepted into the scientists, the scientific community. And she starts, you know, discovering new elements and working with her lab partner, um, Otto Hahn. And 
together they form this great partnership and years later after you know uh some of their really big discoveries they start trying to create a new element by smashing uranium uh smashing neutrons into uranium so they're smashing neutrons into uranium i'm sure like a lot of your listeners actually know this story already um, and whoa, uh, I wouldn't be so sure. Oh, okay. Well, they're smashing <laughs> yeah. neutrons into uranium and they're trying to create a new element, but their experiments totally out of whack. They don't know what's going on. Um, they're really confused. It doesn't seem to be working how they expected. And then in the middle of this, Hitler rises to power and Lisa is also Jewish. So now she mm-hmm. has to flee for her life actually, with the help of Niels Bohr, but that's a whole other story. Wow. Um, And becomes a refugee in, I believe, Switzerland? Or was it Sweden? Let me think. I think it was Sweden. Ooh, it's Sweden. I'm I'm following along. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's Sweden. I'm (laughs) trying. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20enespañol.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to say it from memory. Um, <laughs> yeah. So she becomes a refugee in Sweden, and she continues to write secret letters to Otto Hahn to figure out what their experiment, like what, what the results were. And while she's in Sweden, she realizes that they weren't smashing they weren't creating two different little tiny elements. They were actually, uh, through all that smashing, stretching apart the nucleus and releasing nuclear energy. They had discovered fission, and she figured out basically how they did it. So she yeah. writes, which wow. is nuts. Yeah. Um, she writes Otto Hahn back. Um, he publishes without her because she can't return to Germany. He's awarded the Nobel Prize without her and <laughs> basically gets complete credit for her work. And people know she was involved, but it's it's really not not in the way that Otto Hahn was uh, treated for this discovery. He was treated like he made the discovery and she basically assisted him. Um, and it's just stories like this where you think about everything they went through, um, how they just kept persisting how they would not let what was going on in the world uh, 
define what they would do with their lives, how they continued their work, and how they changed the world with their work. Um, and even though uh, she wasn't given the proper recognition at the time, now we can recognize her and celebrate her for what she did. Oh, it's so, you know... I think one of the things that your book does so well is it really puts you in that place where you, it, it's one thing to talk about it, you know, kind of in generalities. It's another thing to dive deep into their lives and really understand that, yes, in spite of the odds of what was happening in the world, you know, a lot of these women were working against insane situational odds that regardless of if they were men or women would be difficult. But also there was an era for many of these women where even if it was your work, it was like just assumed that you must have been a lab assistant because that's just all women were thought to be capable of. And so even, even in a situation where these women are doing the bulk of the science, the outside perception of them was like, oh, that's nice that you have a good, you know, secretary who's actually a little smarter than most secretaries. Oh, it's yeah. Like, really? Really? It's and that's pretty what they, nuts. So many of them were overlooked for Nobel Prizes, were overlooked for faculty positions. Lots of them, it wasn't like faculty positions you just couldn't get as a woman. It was just unheard of. Oh, yeah, definitely. And especially during um, the Great Depression, if your husband had a faculty position, you weren't allowed to get one, even if you um, were more uh, qualified than your husband. And um, there are many stories in here where um, women had to work for free with no pay, with no title for so long and even with their discoveries, um, finally, they were just allowed to become a faculty member after, you know, basically doing Nobel Prize worth work. It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty, um, it, it, gives, it gives you chills. And at the mm -hmm. same time, you feel so indebted to them because many of these people's discoveries, um, whether it's Cecilia Payne, who figured out uh, that the sun is made of gas, or Maria Gupert Mayer, who did all this really important work on, you know, ions and physics, and um, she had to work for free without any title for most of the time that she was doing this work. Um, and especially when you talk about people getting just called secretaries, Rosalind Franklin is pretty much the poster child of that, where she discovers the double helix and the men in her office, in her, in her lab, steal her work from her and don't even see anything wrong with it because they just treated her like a secretary or a lab assistant the whole time, even though she was there as their equal um, and stole the credit from her and then slandered mm -hmm. her. Uh, after she died. And it really wasn't until people looked into uh, the papers and what really happened where they, they realized that Rosalind Franklin discovered the structure of DNA and what an egregious error this been, this has been all this time. But, you know, sometimes it's a little, a little too late, but I really think yeah. that if we tell their stories and write those wrongs, then we can really change perceptions now and prevent stuff like this from happening. I agree. She's such a good reminder because like 
the error of those ways has really been brought to light with Rosalind Franklin and at least people in the sciences. She is basically up there for a lot of people with like Marie Curie or Jane Goodall, like as a recognizable name, not quite to the same level, I think for people outside of the sciences, but some people at least have recognition. If you say, have you heard of Rosalind Franklin? They're like, oh yeah, but I don't know why. So at least there's like some sort of global name recognition there, but, but just exactly how much work she did and how she was overlooked. It's like, we're getting better at realizing that and sort of, unfortunately, post-mortem showing, you know, our, our, our indebtedness and our gratitude, but how many of these incredible women, you know, didn't get any, um, accommodation during their lives, worked thanklessly their entire lives. And only after they were dead, did anybody really start to give them their real due? Like how difficult that must have been. I, and I think at the end of the day for these, for these scientists, um, it really was that love of the work that kept them going, that it wasn't about for them. It really recognition would have been nice getting paid would have been nice, but they just had this deep love affair with their science and that's what kept them going. Yeah. And I think it's exciting that people know who Rosalind Franklin is now. That That's pretty modern. Um, and I think books like this and movies like Hidden Figures and um, all the other women's books that are coming out uh, are making it so that in the pop culture, people know more female scientist names. So like it isn't just Marie Curie and Jane Goodall because those are pretty much the only two they, you know, people outside of the sciences really think about when they think about a female scientist. And that really messes with people too, just having maybe one or two examples. All of a sudden people see, um, see it as normal to see only one or two women in a room of 100. So yeah. We need to really change that. And I really think by putting more stories like that in the public eye, having more people become social icons when you think of science, all of a sudden we can change that expectation of what you expect to see when you get into a classroom, when you get into uh, the office, when you get into a laboratory. So... Absolutely. And you know, I, I feel like there's a really good model for that. So I'm going back to school right now. I'm I'm going back to finally do or finish, I should say, but I have to start from scratch. My PhD, I, I attempted it about a decade ago and, and left. Um, and you know, my undergrad was psych, my master's was biology with a neuroscience concentration. And now I'm going back for clinical psychology. And I feel like psychology is such a good model for this because only like 50 years ago, psychology looked a lot like chemistry and physics. There was, it was, you know, maybe there were two women. Uh, it was all men in the field. All of the old videos that you watch of psychotherapy sessions, all of the main, you know, people who really shaped the field were male. But now in my classes, it's flipped. There's, you know, there's maybe five guys in my class. And so and it's not that this is the goal with every field, but psychology obviously has... Um, 
has an attraction to kind of this very empathic, especially psychotherapy, uh, clinical psychology, there's this empathic attraction. And um, a lot of women really thrive in that field. But it's so interesting talking to some of the faculty members, some of the professors who are a little bit older because they lived it. They were in it when they were getting their PhDs, when it was unheard of for a woman to get a PhD. And they had to fight for everything they earned because they were surrounded by men in the field. And I love that there are actual examples out there where where the ceiling has broken to some extent. And we can use those as really good models for a lot of other fields um, in, in the sciences. And you're totally right. I actually, I have the statistics in front of me because I put statistics in this book and I made them really pretty. I'm taking statistics right now and my head hurts, but I love it. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah, me too. But um, (laughs) you need data. I I really believe like to prove any point you need data to back you up because someone will just say, well, this is all anecdotal. And I'm like, no, 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 there's data. It's real. (laughs) Uh, But um, yeah, in the 1970s, um, women only made 17% of the social sciences in yeah. as professionals. And now it's as high as 61%. So we see it's gotten way more equitable. And I think social sciences are just so important because um, these are the studies that allow lawmakers to set policy and mm-hmm. um, also to argue for better uh, just sort of uh, – metrics within schools, within universities, within um, places of business. And you actually have, I have a couple stories about that in my book. I have um, uh, Lillian Gilbreth, who uh, was a social scientist who actually, uh, and a psychologist and an industrial engineer who uh, set the standards for ergonomics and how we use tools I have uh, Karen Horney, who is the first feminist psychologist, who basically was like, all this, uh, you know, Freud keeps saying that we all just want to be men and we all have penis envy, but that's actually not true. Uh-huh. <laughs> like society doesn't allow us to have jobs or independence, and maybe that's what we're jealous of. So um, she was just so important. And then um, one of the most important people I think there is to psychology and the social sciences in general is uh, Mamie Phipps Clark. And she was the wife of Kenneth Clark. And that's probably what people most know her as, um, as the wife of Kenneth Clark, who um, was so important to Brown versus Board of Education, who spoke in the Supreme Court. Um, But she was actually the uh, psychologist who created the tests that they used to be able to um, see how children reacted to segregation in schools. So she developed the color doll test where yeah. they would, and I, I'm pretty sure everybody knows what the color doll test is. They but in do, case they don't, maybe you can in, give us a review. In case they don't, um, they went to segregated and unsegregated schools, and they went to black and white children, and they gave them a doll. Um, they had gave them a choice of dolls uh, that were exactly the same except for their skin color, a black mm-hmm. doll and a white doll. And the children that were in segregated schools, the children of color, would choose the white doll and they would describe the black doll as bad and ugly. Mm. And in turn, they were describing themselves as bad and ugly. And it was overwhelmingly more in segregated schools than unsegregated schools. And it was the proof that they needed to show that this was damaging children's psyches and this was harmful to children and needs to be stopped and destroyed 
And so they were able to use those findings in the Supreme Court case and schools, public schools became, uh, you know, under law, unsegregated. So it's huge, the impact that um, the social sciences have and also that this woman in particular had on our entire country. Gosh, that's so... It's funny because we don't think about the fact that, and maybe it's because we're living in this like post-truth society right now and everything's sort of turned upside down with, with our current administration, but we often don't think about the fact that historically some, I don't want to say most, but some, and especially some very important legislation really has been evidence-based. And without the studies without the really thankless hard work that individuals have done, especially I think many times women, individuals from underrepresented groups who are fighting against institutional barriers, but are also fighting to change those institutional barriers from within, that work has actually had a massive effect on society at large. You know, things don't just willy-nilly shift. And yes, sometimes on a whim, sometimes things are are done capriciously within um, our legislative bodies. But oftentimes when the Senate is voting something on something, when Congress is voting on something, they want to see why should I vote this way versus that way? And they do these massive hearings and they have these scientists and these social scientists come in and really share all of the important work that they've done. You know, it, it, it takes a village and some of these people are the most instrumental in bending that arrow towards progress. Oh, yeah. And just, I mean, talking about evidence-based legislation, that is is such a passion of mine, especially with, it it broke my heart to see, you know, the defunding of the EPA, um, especially because I learned how hard Rachel Carson had to work excuse me, Um, how hard Rachel Carson had to work to um, just get in front of the Senate and tell the stories of how she saw DDT poisoning our groundwater. She actually, um, she was the marine biologist who wrote Silent Spring, Mm -hmm. and uh, which I think is just, uh, uh, what a hero of mine. It's like she used her writing to get people who are not scientists uh, to understand exactly what was happening and to what was happening to them and to our environment. And while she was fighting cancer uh, and during a smear campaign that the chemical companies were putting on her, that they spent, you know, a quarter of a million dollars to, you know, basically you know, smear Rachel Carson through the mud. During yep. all of that, she goes on the Senate, she talks about her findings, and they use her findings to find the EPA, they clean up the groundwater, and um, they save a bunch of lives. Ugh, and it's just, it's so difficult. Like, it's not in our human nature to maintain this global focus all the time and not get caught in the weeds. But these women are such good examples of being able to look past all of the day-to-day frustrations and difficulties and kind of keep their eye on this bigger-than-them goal, this, you know, improving us for the future, improving the lives of people who I've never even met. It's it's a tough goal to maintain, and they're just such warriors for that. Oh, yeah. And the exciting thing about this book is that I got to 
I got to really explore that, but I also got to explore um, kind of just more fun things about these women, like the fact that Jane Goodall has a stuffed animal that she took with her everywhere when she was a kid that was like a little monkey. And the fact that Aww. she took her mom with her um, for her first trip in, to uh, live among the chimps. She like took her mommy with her. How sweet is that? <laughs> and she's like, I'm it. so sad. My mom left right before I made my big discovery, you know? <laughs> so it's just like, these are real people with real lives and real hopes and dreams. And um, I hope that just by drawing these little doodles about them, that people want to hear their stories. Oh, absolutely. And especially, I think, young people. It's just so approachable. I mean, not just young people, because, of course, I love the book. But um, also young people to be able to see all these women of different backgrounds, of different colors, of different, you know, ideologies, um, you know, seeing somebody like them, you know, I can relate to this one person because she grew up like I did or because she looks like me or because she, you know, talks like me. She has interests like me. And if she could do it, maybe I could try it too. Because we know that the evidence shows over and over and over that unless we see modeling in society, we just don't even think of the option of being able to do those things. If we think that's what other people do, that's not what people like me do, we won't even try. And so being able to give young people an opportunity to see all these women together in a really fun way, in a very digestible way, um, I just think that this book is so incredibly important. Oh, well, thank you so much. And um, it was it was like a dream come true. It was the real dream job when I got to... Oh, make yay. this book and <laughs> uh, design it in this way because I have a background in illustration design, design it in this like over illustrated, oversaturated way that like is my personal fantasy of what books can be. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm really excited about this next book, um, Women in Sports, because I really think that there's going to be so many girls who read this and, and afterwards they're just going to be like, my body is this like capable, strong vessel for myself. And like, I think it's the best way to just empower women, empower their um, relationship with themselves and their own physical body and what it's, and a focus on what female bodies are capable of instead of just what they look like. So Absolutely. I'm really excited about the next book too. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to actually switch gears and dive into that because this is your most recent book. When was it? Um, when was it published? Um, wow, really recently. It was published 
Man, time I, keeps flying. I, I believe, know. Do I have it here? It was like right before Comic-Con. I like count everything by my events. <laughs> July so, 18th, 2017. Very, very recently. There it is. Yeah. It's been a crazy year for me. I, I, <laughs> I got married this year. I'm moving across the country. Oh my and gosh. Then of course, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Comic-Con. Comic-Con's like my North Star right now of like when this book was done. Yes. Ju- uh, July. It was early July. It was published. I love it. And so I want to talk first about, before we dive into the wonderful stories, I want to talk first about kind of what informed your decision. You know, you did this great book on women in science. It really inspired you and you thought, gosh, I can do a series. I can do a lot more books like this. Um, So I'm going to dive into the next one. What inspired you to go sports instead of, I don't know, all the options that you have in front of you? There was... There was a lot of reasons. And I think for me, I was thinking like, I just did this thing that really focused on the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, let me focus on the body now. Um, just kind of just naturally, I was like, oh, like mind, body. And then maybe like the next one, will. I'm thinking the next one would be women in art. So it's kind of like soul and power and media. So oh, I love um, it. that and I just remember during the campaign trail for Hillary, everyone just kept talking about how weak she was and how she's going to be sick and unable to lead. And I just thought like, out of all the things you could complain about, that's what, that's what we're focusing on. Whether or not this, this person who has years of experience, who has, you know, traveled across the country to do diplomacy for the past like eight years, whether or not she can, you know, make it through the end of this campaign trail. And I just thought whether or not you like her, that that was kind of ridiculous and just super sexist. Super sexist because he is the exact same age. Like it made no sense. And also, and he's so out of shape, first of all, but also do you remember in the debate when he actually point blank brought that up? And I can't remember what her, what her quick retort was, but it was like, oh, burn. Like it was trending on Twitter because she was so quick with like turning it back on him and basically showing what a ridiculous insult or assault or whatever you want to call it that really was I I don't remember what she said exactly but I remember I remember it so distinctly just being mm-hmm. so upset and disgusted and just being like this this isn't even about politics anymore this is just straight up we don't think women are strong enough to lead and, and that's be, and and why is that it's like we don't think they're strong yeah and, and I think it was something along the lines of like you know, well, after you have, you know, uh, testified before the Senate and flown to blah, blah, blah to do diplomacy and done this and this and this and this and this, then you can talk to me about weakness or something like that. And it was like, oh, shit, sick burn. Because she's so strong, you know, like so strong. She is actually, in many ways, sort of an upper echelon of strength. So many women look up to her as such a strong woman in politics that it's it's like a ludicrous assertion that she's not. Yeah, it's like whether or not you agree with Hillary Clinton as a politician mm-hmm. or her policies, um, man, that is not the critique of her that holds up whether or not she's <laughs> exactly. like a fighter and going to show up. And, and you know what I mean? Like, that's like the one thing I don't think, you know what I mean? Like, that's like the, the one thing that I, I am certain about is that she is a strong individual who um, will always be fighting. Um, so um, just hearing of that and thinking and, and then seeing 
even though she had a sick burn back of him, it worked. There were oh, yeah. plenty of people who were like, yeah, that's right. Um, and plenty of women, too, who were like, yeah, that's right. Because there are plenty of women who voted for Trump, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. I mean, implicit bias and implicit sexism is not only in men. And, of course, at a certain to a certain extent, it, it's completely understandable. It's like I don't blame individuals who carry that around with them because it's so blatant throughout society. It's almost you have to work very, very hard to fight against it. And even you and I, you know, individuals who uh, who we think of as having a more evolved view and obviously are outspoken about these issues, even we have our own implicit biases against ourselves. It's insane, but that's really how it is. Well, I mean, and I just remember growing up as a girl, growing up as a girl, that's funny. Um, (laughs) I just remember growing up um, and there was definitely things about my body that I felt comfortable about, but I, my priority in my mind was always, am I going to grow up to be pretty enough? And I know so many girls who grow up just wasting that mental energy on that. Yeah, not thinking, will I be strong? Will I be healthy? Will I be powerful? But thinking, will will boys or girls, you know, whatever the orientation may be, will other people be attracted to me? And will I will people like me because I'm pretty? You know, I was at yeah. sorry to pull pull the the focus a little, but I was hanging out with a friend of mine the other day. She's a little bit older than I am, and she has a daughter who is, I think, in third grade now. And I had been on a diet. I had been doing Nutrisystem for a while because I had about 20 pounds that I had uh, put on that I wanted to lose. And it was a good kind of science-based way to do it, counting calories and all that. And so we were talking about it when I was at her house. And she had gone on a different kind of diet recently. And she kind of pulled me into the other room and lowered her voice a little bit and, and, and told me some of the things about the diet. And I think she could see on my face kind of like, why did we go in the other room to talk about this? And she was like, you know, I had this realization one day that like if mommy is obsessing over her body and mommy is supposed to be in, in, in a young girl's mind, like mommy is the epitome of perfect. Like my mom is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And she's the most beautiful person I've ever met. And she's warm and she's wonderful and she takes care of me. And if she doesn't like who she is, how am I ever going to have a a healthy relationship with my own body? So this mother, I mean, and I never even thought about it. I was like, how evolved to realize that like, even if you're going on a diet or you're doing stuff for X or whatever it may be, you're never going to show your daughter that you're not comfortable with who you are because that's going to mess her up and make her uncomfortable with who she is. Like what an evolved view. Like it gave me chills when she said that. And I was like, wow, I would have never thought about that. It's, it's, and you know, I think we're seeing so many parents, uh, kind of having a better understanding with the relationship with their own body mm-hmm. and their own psyche and then like making parenting decisions based on that. And I, what it really comes down to is that, look, everybody wants to look good. Everyone wants to feel beautiful. But for women, it's so heavily said, this is the most important thing about you. Yeah. It's And that's the problem. The problem isn't whether or not you want to look good in a bikini. Everybody wants to look good in a bikini or at least feel beautiful in a bikini. It's not, it's not about that. It's about that being the most important thing about your body and the most important thing that your body does. Your, and that's what we have to break down. 
because uh, little boys aren't being told that they're they're being told that their bodies are capable, that their bodies are tools for building things, mm-hmm. for uh, you know, for winning things. Uh, they're tools of strength, and of course, guys also have to struggle with wanting to look good. But when that is the priority of what your body's supposed to do that's when it starts to really warp with your self-esteem and what you're capable of. And so I was thinking a lot about that kind of stuff. And I thought, if I talk about women athletes, women who have, you know, swam across the English Channel, um, like I said before, climb Mount Everest, um, women who have, you know, won the Olympics, who have broken world records, who have cycled across the country, um, then uh, all of a sudden... I'm talking about women in a way that I never really got to see growing up, which is what their bodies are capable of. So this book is just about awesome women really pushing their bodies to the limit. And then what happens when they win on a national and public stage? How do they actually change the perceptions of people all around them and become advocates for um, gender equality, for civil rights, um, within the LGBT community, how do they end up becoming advocates? Um, Because they gained a platform through acts of strength. So I think um, this book is really exciting. And whether or not um, you are an athlete, whether or not you just like playing soccer with your friends, or if you're like on the U.S. national soccer team, uh, you know, uh, you have something in this book for you. And I think there's something that you can get out of it. And also just learn more about history through the eyes of these women who throughout sports. And you'll see how their clothing changes, how by winning, they actually uh, open the the field up to like all women. There's so many, uh, there, there's a woman in here who dressed like a man for 20 years to play polo. She wore a disguise with a little mustache and like totally binded her breasts and wore a suit. And her teammates kept her secret um, because she was such a good polo player. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone, you know, she, she would win all the time at parties. They would go, who's this mysterious Mr. A Jones. He's such a dashing player. <laughs> and after a while she got tired of not being allowed to be in these spaces as a woman so she actually uh, um, wrote a letter to the Polo Association saying, if you don't open your doors to women, I'm going to out you that you have actually been playing with a woman this whole time and you've been made a fool of and you have been tricked. So she, she, uh, they were like, oh, no, we don't want to be made a fool of. So they opened the doors to all women. And then her daughter becomes the greatest polo player in the world. So, wow. It's um, these really cool stories about women who just are like, this is just like in science. This is what I love to do. This is my passion. And I don't care what anyone says. I'm going to do whatever it takes to to pursue it. And I'm going to be the best at it. And I'm going to show them what I am made of as a woman. Oh, yeah. I mean, so many trailblazers in this book. And what I'm what I'm noticing that I love so much about it, because this is not my field and it's not an area I've ever really done research, I have not heard of most of these people. Like, there's a couple in here, like Rhonda Rusi and like Simone Biles, you know, who have been like heavily in the public, uh, uh, public consciousness. 
and Danica Patrick, but there are, and Serena Williams, but there are a lot of women in here who, um, you know, regretfully, I've never heard of their stories. And so I'm just learning so much um, by digging deep into it. And I, I don't know, that's just, it's really enlightening. I love to learn. Um, there, there's a there's a spread in the middle because you don't just, it's 50 women in sports who, you know, really were fearless, really are fearless, but you also do these fun vignettes where you do time, like historical timelines. And then there's a great vignette right in the middle. That's just called muscle anatomy. And what I love about this, because, you know, I'm attracted to the science stuff is you go through all of the, you know, major muscle groups and you show these really strong women. It's like a, an illustration of them. And it reminds me, so there's a local gym where I work out. It's a kind of a personal training gym. And I love my trainer. He's amazing. But I pointed out to him when I first started going there, there are, and it's not his gym, but there are two charts on the wall, like two illustrative graphs. And one of them says the human musculoskeletal system. And then the next one says the female musculoskeletal system. So for some reason, the default one is the man. And then the the woman one actually says this is what it's like for a woman it's like wait what why doesn't it just say the male musculoskeletal system and the female muscular and also they're not different they look different on the body but we have all the same muscles and you want to actually hear something funny so here's a little peek behind the curtain um on drawing this i could not for the life of me find women in these poses when i would mm -hmm. type in muscle anatomy like they would show cuz i was like trying to find those drawings of like, kind of like they're flayed and you really can see all the muscles. Yeah. Um, I couldn't even find that many pictures of, of, uh, bodybuilders who were women in these poses. It yeah, was the really two poses, hard to find. The two poses you used, one is like, she's like almost doing a lunge and sort of has her arms up like a shot put person. Like she's flexing one muscle and then her other arms extended. And then the other pose is from behind and she's lifting a heavy weight. So her arms are up over her head and, you know, like a weightlifter, an Olympic weightlifter. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's true. When you see the female musculoskeletal system, a lot of the the drawings or the images that you see there, it looks like they're posing on a freaking red carpet. It's, it's bizarre when you type in like muscle anatomy women because um, I, I wanted more than just like the straight up and down. I really wanted yeah. – and, and it's hard to draw unless you see the pose. Um, it's like they, they're like – they're posing like models like Hachimama. It's and so I'm like, weird. It's, it's kind of weird because I'm like, who is this for? Thanks, internet. <laughs> like, I'm like, internet, why you got to be like that? But so to draw these, and so I have uh, the woman who's on her knees, she's kind of like in a pose that they do during um, bodybuilder competitions because mm -hmm. I kind of, it, it shows off stuff so easily um, in the space that I had to draw it. Um, so um, I ended up looking at a bunch, I had to like mash up a bunch of references uh, to source to be able to get these poses, even though I'm drawing cartoon women. Yeah. So I like, actually like, uh, some of these drawings I had to do by looking at a female, uh, anatomy thing in, um, one position and then the male anatomy position in the pose I actually wanted. So, um, yeah, it kind of goes to show you there's just a lack of materials out there that this is something that needs to happen. And I just want to let you know, you shouldn't feel bad for not knowing who a lot of these women are, because just like in science, I have included statistics in this book, because yeah. statistics are the king. Um, 
even now, only 3% of media coverage is dedicated to women's sports oh out my of gosh. the whole pie. Um, yeah, even though women make up 50% of the population and that there's actually pretty much 50% of athletes in America are women, um, men get 94% of the TV coverage, uh, around uh, you know, 2% of that is uh, just neutral, both. Mm-hmm. And then... And I'm rounding these numbers. I'm not saying the decimal points. So if it doesn't add up to 100, just get the book and you'll see the decimal points. But um, yeah, and only 3% are women. And it's actually gotten worse since 1989 to uh, now. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I'm looking. It was 92% men in in 1989 and 94.4% men in 2014. And so I don't know if that's a statistically significant difference. So I don't know if it, you know, it, it is worse, which is weird, or at least it's not better. Like we can definitely say it has not improved at all, which is crazy. Oh my gosh. I'm supposed to be working on that. I keep saying crazy and nuts and I'm supposed to be working on it's okay I also always say crazy and nuts I've had a few listeners pointed out to say it's normalizing and I'm like I know I know I want to work on it (laughs) it's it's bananas yes exactly Um, or it's ridiculous (laughs) like especially I just non um stigmatizing words but it's it's so you know it's like it's 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 always a struggle I'm I'm going to say I'm going to say what it is. It's bad and it's harmful. That's yeah. what it is because when you don't see it, when you don't have access to seeing it, it becomes normal mm-hmm. to not see women in those roles. So like if you never see women playing uh, you know, female sports, all of a sudden it just becomes normal in your head. Well, women don't become professional athletes. Why is that? Well, women aren't strong and they're not entertaining to watch in in this way and that's not true because during the olympics we go crazy for the female competitions uh i mean and also uh this last uh you know uh soccer uh what is it called the last um fifa uh, no yeah the the last yeah fifa the last like world soccer uh tournament Mm -hmm. was one of the most watched sporting events in, on TV. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in fact, uh, that started in 1999 with, um, uh, with Mia Hamm. Oh and, yeah. I recognize yeah. that name. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and you recognize that game name because, um, it was during that world soccer cup that, uh, America, um, filled its stands to watch female soccer, filled mm-hmm. the Rose bowl to the brim to watch female soccer, and it got as much viewership in America as the Super Bowl. Wow. So, so it's possible, but it's just it's possible, not in but, our culture. It, and the interesting thing about that story is that FIFA originally was like, no, we don't want to, we don't want that um, for the U.S. World Cup. Uh, I mean, not, not the U.S. World Cup, for the World Cup mm-hmm. set in the USA. Um, we're going to fill smaller venues. We don't think this is going to be watched as much. But one of the women who are on the board uh, actually fought back against it and said, no, 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 no. We are going to have the same stadiums that are used for the male soccer games, yeah. and we are going to fill those seats. And they did it with ease. Yeah, It was a thrilling game. Oh. And... and um, it, it made history and actually changed the way that we see female soccer in this country. It, it's taken much more seriously now. And America actually makes a ton of money off of it. Um, but sadly, there's actually still a pay gap between men and women 
in soccer that uh, the female team last year actually went to Congress and said, this is um, this is unconstitutional. This is against the Equal Pay Act. We need to make sure that uh, FIFA pays us correctly. Um, and so and Congress sided with them. So we're seeing some change. We're seeing some pushback, which is uh, which is really good. But There's still so much work to do. Absolutely. Though. I mean, I wonder how many women who were who were like star athletes in their high schools decide not to pursue it collegiately or professionally because there's this view in American society, at least, and I would assume in a lot of other parts of the world, where like being an athlete as a man is a career option and being an athlete as a woman is a hobby. Yeah, that's that's exactly it, which is why programs like Title IX mm-hmm. are so important because they make sure that universities give equal funding and equal scholarship opportunity. Let's underline that scholarship opportunity to female athletes. Um, and it's proven that it helps make colleges better. And it also helps these women, a lot of these women, um, pursue their passions in and outside of their sport. Their sport is a vehicle to education. And it's something that if they want to pursue afterwards, they need to be paid a living wage to be able to do it. And it's important for our young girls to see them do that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Gosh, Rachel, this has been just such a fascinating chat. It's been so wonderful to to learn about all of these women who, you know, have not really been in the public consciousness and who have really been kind of forgotten or overshadowed throughout the years. Um, there's so much more, guys, if you dig into her books, Women in Science and Women in Sports. I want to ask you before we tie things up, um, if, if you're comfortable answering my final two questions, which I ask everybody, so you'd better be. <laughs> oh, then the answer is yes. <laughs> okay. They're, they're a bit curveball-y, but, um, but let's just dive in. So sort of two sides of the same coin. But when you think about the future in whatever context is relevant to you, it can be the future of your own life, your career, your family, whatever, or it can be like big or global, the future of society, the future of, you know, humanity. Um, number one... What is the thing that's most disconcerting to you? What is keeping you up the most at night? You know, what is that that focal point that you're just ugh frustrated um, about? But on the flip side of that, what are you you know actually hopeful for? What are you optimistic about? You know, what are you really looking forward to? Okay, so let's let's do the good one first. Okay. So, um, and this is going to go a little off track, but I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation. Hell yeah. And I love it so much. And it's really shaped a lot about me. Mm-hmm. And there's this one episode. This is this is the dorkiest thing ever. So I'm in the right place. Yep. Um, <laughs> there, there's this one episode where like Data is like stuck on a planet and he like forgets things. And it's like they're in like the Renaissance period on this planet. So like they don't have technology. And He's talking to this young little alien and she's like, oh, Data, do you, do you, like, my mom is dying. Do you believe in heaven? And then he looks up at the stars and he goes, uh, he's like, I believe in a place where um, there's no hunger and people love one another and celebrate who they are. Um, and everyone is trying to learn more. 
So yes, I believe in heaven. And that's kind of paraphrasing. And then he looks up into the stars and they show the Starship Enterprise. And it gets me every time. <laughs> oh, it gets me. Um, and I probably didn't quote him right. So all the Trekkies out there will just, you know, bash me and tell me exactly what he said. But um, <laughs> it was like, I paraphrased and that was it. And it's just this very, uh, and uh, for some reason for me, that's just been this like, oh, like, if we can get to that point where, you know, there's no, like, there's no disease and there's no hunger and we all just love each other. And I know that's so cheesy, but, uh, I grew up with Star Trek. So it's like, that's, that's my hopes and dreams for the future. That's, that's like, I'm like, if I can do something professionally that nudges us there, even a tiny bit, like a grain for that to be like humanity's future, uh, I'll be okay. Um, and what's, um, so disconcerting yeah, for me. What are you, what are you, you know, kind of worried about? What do you like to keep your eye on? Oh man, just like we were saying before that right now it's kind of like post fact politics, post fact world. Um, uh, it's, I, I feel like we have exited the golden age of the internet I, and I got to experience it firsthand. Like who gets to live during a golden age of something, you know? Yeah. Um, and we've exited it into something else. And it concerns me when what I worry about is when large companies and people choose the easiest and most, um, the easiest and most equitable, like finance, like like money beneficial way of doing something instead of what's right and what needs to be done. And right now, I feel like the internet is not being used in the way that the people who created it intended it to be. Yeah, where it was free and a place where people could really exchange ideas and um, exchange knowledge and start businesses. And right now, I think just with the way that the algorithms are set up, the way people are interacting with the internet, but also the way the internet's interacting with us. Um, it's allowing a lot of people to kind of form these bubbles around their ideas, form these bubbles around their camps of, of their ideology, whether or not it's good or bad. And instead of the internet being a tool, I feel like a lot of the times were the tools getting used mm -hmm. for clicks. Yeah. So that's that's what really makes me nervous right now. And I don't know if I said that in an eloquent way or not, but um, yeah, that's, that's what keeps me up at night. And I think there's going to be a lot of things that need to change. And I think it's going to have to come from the people using the internet, all of us kind of coming together and saying, no, like this isn't about what I click on or ad revenue or this or that. This is about real dialogue, a real expression of ideas, and actually sourced real factual uh, materials. So um, I think there's hope for it to change. But right now, we are definitely um, in a test. It's a, it's a big test, and I hope we all pass it. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's easy to get really down and obviously it is disconcerting for all of us. Um, but I, I, I love your perspective. You, you seem to be somebody who's good at finding the silver lining and good at um, noticing that even when things are 
much more difficult than they were, and there's much more resistance than we've seen historically, although not always historically, but immediately historically, that in a way it it sort of shows our resiliency and it shows how much progress we've actually made. Like the reason that this feels like such a hiccup is because we've been making so much progress. And I think if we maintain that kind of perspective, it can really help us get through the the sort of dark days, you know, when we open up Twitter oh, yeah. and we're like, oh my God, the world's on fire. <laughs> and you know what? When, and just to go back to my books, the women in these books had to, had to deal with so many serious problems, so many darker times in history. And through a sense of self and through the love of their work and through a passion to make the world a better place, they were able to help change it for the better and, you know, drive that arrow towards good. And so I think if everyone can just get their head on and decide to do something to push us towards a good and more equitable world that we live in, then there's hope that maybe at the end of it all, we'll get Star Trek as the big cherry on top. But yes. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just what, it's the thing that keeps me. Um, and this is just a very personal, you're seeing like the personal thought process in my own head for me personally. Um, how many times can I say the word personal? I don't know. A few more, a few more would work. A, f- a few more, <laughs> but um, I, I, it's that courage to wake up and to try and do good work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even when the whole world is like, we, you know what? Like the whole world is kind of giving you the finger. Yeah. You got to say, it's okay. I know the things I do help individuals in this way. And I'm going to keep doing it because it's the only thing I know how to do. Absolutely. So you, you got to do it. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I want to thank you again for, for joining us on the show. I want to make sure everybody knows that Women in Sports, 50 Fearless Athletes Who Played to Win, and also Women in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World are available wherever you can buy books by Rachel Ignatovsky. So make sure you check that out. And Rachel, where can people um, reach out to say hi? Like, are you active on social media? I'm very active on Instagram. My Instagram is literally at Rachel Ignatovsky. So if you could figure out how to spell my last name, you're in. (laughs) And um, if you want to shout out at me, if you have any questions about my work or my book or what it's like being an author and illustrator, I will answer them. And if you want to take a picture of yourself doing something cool or even with my books, I always am happy to regram something that I think looks really, really cool. So, um, And then you could also visit my website, at Rachel Ignatovsky design.com. Wonderful. Love it. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. This was such a blast. Yes, this was awesome. It was well worth the wait. Absolutely. And hey, everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
Chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.